millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening. Welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. My name is Travis Dell. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we're going to talk about the Kabbalah, and this is probably the first of two shows because we need to kind of lay the foundation to eventually talk about the Kabbalistic alchemists, um, and also especially maybe even the um, Christian Kabbalah and uh, the influence on Lulianism and and Lulian alchemists that, that, you know, this whole tradition kind of builds upon. So to break down Kabbalah a little bit, it's basically an esoteric tradition, so kind of like a you know a mystic tradition that grew out of Jewish communities. Now, it's not a religion itself, so not all Jews are Kabbalistic. In fact, it, you know sometimes it can be seen as a heresy, but it's it, it did come out of these Jewish traditions. So they do have the Torah and Talmud and all those things as a foundation, and it kind of emerged out of esoteric traditions that you know even predate. Uh, the Kabbalah itself, let's say around the 12th to 13th century in like southern France and Spain, and it also gained momentum or took on a kind of new aspects in the 16th century in Ottoman-controlled Palestine when they started to focus on looking for when the long-awaited Messiah would finally come, okay, especially around the town of, of Safed. So there's, you know, we're we're spanning a great deal of time here. And then, like I said, there was, you know, there was Christian Kabbalah and many, many offshoots. So we're not going to get into all aspects of the Kabbalah, um, but we'll give you an overview and try to keep it short because there is more to come that actually ties into alchemy more directly. A follower is called a Mekubal. And if you ask a Mekubal, they would tell you that Kabbalah is ancient knowledge passed down by tzaddikim, which means righteous people, and I hope I didn't butcher that, and the knowledge that eventually led to all religion, science, art, political thought, etc. We've heard the same kind of philosophy before, like in things like even Neoplatonism and, and Hermeticism and that kind of thing, that there's this this knowledge that leads to all wisdom. You know, according to Zohar, the, fund, the fundamental text of Kabbalistic thought uh, is a you know, book that uh, we've used for research on this show. Uh, the Torah study can be uh, can proceed along with four levels of interpretation. These four levels are called pardes, uh, from their initial letters P R D S, uh, as in Hebrew would be orchard. So maybe yeah. the growth of knowledge is where that might come from. So let's take a look at some of these four parts. Um, Peshat uh, in Hebrew is known as simple, the direct interpretations of of, the, of a meaning. Remez, the allegoric meaning um, throughout, through allusion, would be part of that in Hebrew, which means hint. Mm-hmm. All right? uh, derash in Hebrew uh, is uh, inquire or to seek, and in its rabbinic meaning is often used with imaginative uh, comparisons with similar words or verses. Yeah, 
Okay, and finally, sod, which uh, it means secret in Hebrew or mystery, the inner esoteric metaphysical sort of meaning expressed in the Kabbalah. So, as we can take a look at these these four aspects uh, among this Kabbalistic thought, uh, the Kabbalah is considered to be the followers of a, of the, of a necessary part of the study of Torah. So, as Travis, as you mentioned, um, this has strong connections to Judaism and some of their foundational texts and and uh, uh, learned sort of knowledge set comes from the very beginning, uh, a very found, strong foundation of Judaism. Yeah, so, right, so even, so again, it's not mainstream Judaism. Uh, if you if you um, ask a, a group of Jews to comment on this, several might say it's actually heresy. Or, I would say you know, more, more, I would say that's definitely, you're, you're going to come That in might with, be the mainstream, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but um, even, even, so it is an important part. So even, Christian Kabbalists would, there are exceptions, but but um, they would even they would look at the original Hebrew text. So the Hebrew letters and words are you know have hidden meanings. So um, there's a, some exceptions, like some actually would would use the Latin. You know they would apply Kabbalistic principles to the Latin alphabet and that kind of thing. But even Christian Kabbalah would would look back and at the Hebrew alphabet. When I read the Zohar, it's still written as rabbis commenting on the Torah. So just like the Talmud is like an interpretation of the Torah. And, and you know, and Travis, this, this actually isn't too far off, off the path with a lot of religions that will look really deeply into the, into the written words of, of their of foundational uh, part of their, of their religion. Uh, we see people doing this with adding numbers in the Bible that might, e- might equal something yeah, and um, looking for hidden meanings. Yeah. If you look at these four points we just talked about, let's look at the words in the English translation uh, from Hebrew. Simple, hints, secret, or mystery, uh, and uh, also looking to inquire or seek. You know, th- those are those are really uh, meaningful sort of words that come with this. So I don't want to jump ahead too much, but in the Zohar, they would really they would examine like the sentence structure. They would say, "Why did he say it? Um, you know, this way and not this way." And that's and then they would have this long like two page explanation on why this word comes before this word in a sentence. So they would, you know, the names of God had very distinct meanings. And uh, you know why did they say Adonai and not and not the true name of God or something like this? So to kind of break it down a little bit further, there, there's different branches of Kabbalah, and what we're mostly dealing with is Theosophical Kabbalah, where, whereas there's also Meditative Kabbalah or magico theurgical tradition, um, like practical practical Kabbalah. And so again, we're we're kind of more deal, dealing with theosophical because we got to pick about we got to pick something to talk about, and we can't we can't be all inclusive here. There, there's a lot of stuff to to go over, and so to to narrow our scope even further, we kind of stop after medieval Kabbalah. So there's you know Hermetic influence in Christian book Kabbalah, like we mentioned, and then later developments are very interesting. So really trying to decode the Bible. Um, to find out when the Messiah is coming, um, and Christian Kabbalah does that also, uh, or you know tries to, um, but we stop there. So that's outside of our scope for for this show. So when when I read the Zohar, so I read the the an abridged version, granted, but I read the Zohar cover to cover to try to get some kind of understanding of of what this is all about. And so when we talk about all these different hidden meanings, yeah, there's. There's a couple of examples here. One of those examples is something called the Tree of Sephiroth. 
which means the tree of life. But it means emanations. Uh, emanations are of the ten attributes uh, in Kabbalah, uh, through which Ein Sof, which means the infinite, reveals himself and continuously creates both the physical realm and the chain of higher metaphysical realms. Uh, the term is alternately tra- um, tra- transliterated into English, and uh, it's uh, known in the singular as Sephira or Sephiria. And so you kind of get an idea of, of circles here. Um, so basically when each of the ten circles uh, is, is one way God reveals himself. Yeah, so I'll have to I'll post a picture of the Tree of Life. I think when you see it, you'll know what I'm talking about. So Circles imagine, intersect with each other. Well, no, so, so imagine a kind of a tree-looking thing and with three vertical lines. So you have ten circles. Each one has a name of God in it. And the, so in three columns, the middle column is longer, which is where the stem of the tree comes from, right? Okay. Yeah. If I show you a picture, you'll yeah, know. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, so you'll I know, would be very interested but, to see what it looks like. But you've seen it somewhere, you know, in some kind of mystical uh, illustrations or something, you know, it, it's, it's a familiar thing, the, the tree of life. For instance, 10 is important, 7 is important, numbers in general are very important in the Kabbalah, and, and there's a bunch of numerology um, to go along here, but so when God split the sea into seven streams, which is mentioned in Isaiah, um, he, with those, those make up the lower seven zephyrot, uh, which are associated with like strength, victory, and we talked about this in other uh, episodes also, especially like Ramon Lul. So Ramon Lul took this idea and ran with it. This was part of his divinities of God, uh, which I explain on my website also, if you need a reminder. And that's part of his computer where he, he wrote them all on a disk. And when you turn, you know, you see, you see like air, earth, fire, water, and then the 10 dignities of God and, you know, all those, the attributes of matter, everything. Um, so when God created the world, he created the world with 10 words, right? So hence 10. Um, then I mentioned that there's three columns. So those are, those are called Gimel Kavin, like three lines in Hebrew. And those are often revert, referred to as the three fathers, like the three columns are, and which are der- derived from the three mothers. So it has, those are kind of attributed to three, the three vowels, uh, Vav, Yud, and He. Now let's take a look at the central column, one of the three columns that we're talking about with these associations. The Kether heads uh, the central column of the tree, which is known metaphorically speaking as the pillar of mildness. And it's associated with the Hebrew letter Aleph, which means the breath, uh, the air element, if you will. Uh, It is a neutral one, and it's a balance between the two opposing forces of the male and the female tendencies. We talk sort of kind of like the yin and the yang, uh, the balance there. Uh, Some teachings describe the Sephoret as a center pillar, as gender gender neutral, uh, while others say that the Sephoret vary in the uh, sexual attributions. So there is kind of a, a, a basic theme here when you talk about the um, the central column being the thing that binds the other two columns together in some ways, and um, it would make this probably more neutral or mild would be the takeaway from this one. Yeah. So so the, uh, on the the right column, kind of like the the pillar of mercy is what you could call it in English, and it's associated with the Hebrew letter shin, or or also the fire element, kind of like that's the male side basically, and then the left column obviously the female side. Um, it's so on top is Bina or Binah, and it's called the pillar of severity, which is associated with the Hebrew letter Mem, the water element also, and the female aspect. It, not to say that each circle on those pillars is necessarily male or female. So it's just kind of, you know, 
generally speaking, those those columns is how it breaks down. But uh, some would consider that only the Binach and the Malkut are considered female, while all the others, Sephirot, are male. Um, there's different interpretations uh, depending on which text you're looking at. But um, in both Jewish and Hermetic Kabbalah, each Sephira is seen as a male in relation to the following Sephirot in succession on the tree, and female in relation to the foregoing Sephirot. So it goes, you know, descending order, like, you know, morph male as you go down. Yeah, again, many interpretations. Okay, but, but obviously this is kind of one of the cores I want to get to is that there's also numerological sense of the tree of Sephirot, right? There's a, there's a lot of numbers that have significance here. And you're right, the significance uh, is, is pretty powerful. Between the 10 Sephirot runs 22 channels or paths which connect them, uh, a number which can be associated with the 22 letters of the Hebrew alf- alphabet. Again, no mistake there. Together, the spiritual forces of the 10 Sephirot and the 22 connecting channels are called the 32 paths of wisdom. The inv- to envision this tree, consider each of these 10 spheres as being concentric circles with Milkoth being the innermost and all the others encompassing by the latter. Uh, none of these are separate from the other, uh, to give you a further bit of an idea of this, and all simply help to form a more complete view of the perfected whole. So to simply speak uh, and say this, Milkoth is the kingdom which... Th- is the physical world upon which we live and exist. The Kether, also known as the Kether or the Kether Elon, uh, is the crown of the universe. Mm-hmm. All right, now we're kind of getting pretty deep here on this one. Representing the highest attainable understanding of God that men can possibly understand. Which sounds very much like trying to understand the form of God, like the Neoplatonic. Yeah, so Very much so. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of uh, kind of overlapping ideas here. Okay, so for instances, to, to give you an example from like Genesis 1, so how they would break this down. So the mothers represent the three times Genesis states God made, right? So God made a man, God, you know, like in his image, God made, you know, every time in that chapter they say God made, that's kind of the mothers. The doubles represent the seven times Genesis states God saw, like and God saw it was good, Right. And then the elementals or singles represent the rest of the times God, like Elohim in every instance of Genesis 1, is mentioned. So again, they, you know, they have these 10 circles and each one, or there's a couple of them that have, just depending on what words are in Genesis 1. And th- these have significant, like deeper meanings. To, to, to understand something, sometimes the imam or the priest or the preacher or the rabbi will put things in a historical context so you can better understand these words. It, it, does that happen yeah. here in Kabbalah as well? Okay, but, but we're talking like very esoteric meanings. So not, yeah, forget about the historical context. Mm-hmm. We're talking like describing every Hebrew letter, word, number associated with the letter or, or the word, even the accent on words. And that's important. Like even the accent of the words, I mentioned sentence structure earlier, every letter or word, they're talking about a spiritual dimension with, you know, deep exo- esoteric ideas associated with each phrase and, you know, just like the part of the sentence, like where it says God made or God saw. So they count those, you know, and then, I mean, it's just, and then all these combinations of those, just like it says, you know, there's seven times Genesis states God saw. So that's obviously important. Yeah, so a lot of context and a lot of, like, overthinking this. So translation in, in is extremely important here. 
what I'm thinking from my from my religious background that there's there's a big rift between people that don't like the or don't appreciate the uh, the King James version of the Bible because there's a translation difference in some yeah. words from the from the Greek so, and also the Hebrew. So that wouldn't right? fly, yeah. Right. Because so to get that the correct numerical value, it has to be the original Hebrew. Now there's there's a whole um, call it a system. I would I don't want to call it a field of study, but there's a whole system called uh, gematria or gematria, depending on, uh, you know, how it's translated. It's basically assigning a numer- numerical value to a word or a phrase. Um, if you have two different phrases and they each have the same numerical value, then there could be some relation to each other. Even if it doesn't seem like it, if you read the two phrases, there might be something totally different, but if the numerical value is the same, there's some relation. So obviously there's a lot of interpretive possibilities on, you know, what those that relation is. Then again, it could apply to a a person's age, anything with a number in it, you know, so it could be the calendar year, um, anything like that. So even though the, the, the term is Hebrew, it probably comes from the Greek geometria, like geometry, right, which was used as a, as a translation of gematria. So some scholars believe that it kind of derived from Greek grammatia, like, so they're both kind of Greek words, like you know, grammar in a way. Grammatea and geometria had an influence on the formation of the Hebrew word. Now we're already getting into like Hellenistic times and, and you know, some of the, the etymology of the system, but um, I don't want to get into it too much. But uh, like some people we mentioned, like Giovanni Pico della Mirandola. I, wait, we haven't done him yet. We haven't done him. We, okay. You know, I've talked so he, about him in research. A, yeah, I have, I have one yeah. of his books. Right. Um, so he's he's a Christian Kabbalist. So he clearly got it from Greek, um, but he's still analyzing Jewish texts. One of the best known example, maybe, is just to kind of give you one discrete example, is the Hebrew word chai, which means life. So it's composed of two letters, and those two letters add up to 18. And this has made 18, just that fact, has made 18 a lucky number in, you know, Jewish circles, some Jewish circles. And so sometimes you, you, like, you might give gifts in multiples of 18. For instance, that's a like, lot of gifts. Yeah, well, maybe it's uh, thirty-six cents. I, <laughs> oh, you know, okay. I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay. I know that was a very shallow, um, flat introduction to Kabbalah. There's a lot of stuff there. We're going to go a little bit deeper when we talk about Christian Kabbalah and um, uh, some of the because Christian Kabbalah had there were Jewish alchemists, and we will do a podcast on them at some point. But the ones that I'm more familiar with at the moment are Christian Kabbalist alchemists. Before we end this podcast, so I did read the Zohar, and the, the, the disclaimer I want to say before I, I, we go over some of my speaking notes is there are a lot of interesting things that, that struck me when I read it, but I don't necessarily know, like I've never read the Talmud, so I don't necessarily know what part is not mainstream Jewish philosophy or theology and what part is. So I'm going to, uh, you know, we're kind of going to go over some interesting parts of, of the Zohar. If you're more familiar with Judaism, then you might recognize some of this stuff from mainstream stuff. So that's not, not to say this is all esoteric, uh, weird mysticism, but just some of the interesting points, I would say, that I got from the Zohar. And, and some, of the, some of these points um, have some, they ring a bell across several different religions. Uh, but, uh, you know, for instance, when we say, when God said, let there be light... He wasn't talking about the light of day, as one might normally read literally from the Bible, but more talking about his wisdom. 
which we see in the many esoteric traditions or even the what we call the Enlightenment. Right. Yeah. You know, so God gave the light to Adam so he could see everything, to David, Solomon, and Moses, but hid it from all others. It basically reinterprets the creation story in Genesis very differently. Um, so the separation of light from darkness is the creation of esoteric knowledge that is not available to everyone. Yeah. So again, different religions are going to teach different things. Uh, the little translation, um, a figurative idea, you know, those type of things. So the, the Zohar has its own viewpoint. So the Zohar is written like uh, like conversation between two or three rabbis always. It's almost like when Plato wrote about, you know, Plato never put himself in the stories. He was always writing about Socrates arguing with somebody else. So the Zohar is kind of like that. So you always have like two two rabbis um, kind of sharing their wisdom with each other and they come to conclusions. And so, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Um, another example is, is a couple of rabbis are sitting around and they break down the word Adam. So the, you know, the first man. So they say, okay, it's spelled Aleph, Dalet, Mem. So in the Zohar, this is, these are the cardinal directions that made man. So the word Adam is broken down into its Kabbalistic meaning of cardinal directions, like at least east, west, and then one. So one woman. And uh, by the way, who was the first woman according to uh, Jewish mysticism? Well, that wouldn't be Eve. It would be Lilith. Yeah. Right, so um, I'm not very familiar with the word Lil, you know, the the uh, personification of Lilith, uh, but um, it's this is this is where the, Zoh- the Zohar actually goes with the yeah, first so, woman. Yeah, they they do mention Lilith in the Zohar, and it's it's also mentioned not just in Kabbalistic texts. This is also it's not in the Bible, but it is it is in um, pretty mainstream kind of uh, Jewish stories. We're not going to break down Lilith's story. It's it's very cool. I would highly recommend just Google. Just go to Wikipedia and look up Lilith. It's um, another example is, for instance, in Deuteronomy, it, it mentions that God is a pillar of fire. Yet elsewhere, um, it's mentioned that we should embrace Him. Okay, so these are obviously very opposing ideas of God. So this starts a discussion on the nature of fire, that there is consuming and pure fire. Like when you look at a candle, you see that the top white fire is burning on top of blue or red or black, you know, depending on what you're burning. That which in turn is burning the wick. Okay, so likewise, they this is like a you know pages and pages of discussion. But so they they talk about how fire represents hidden wisdom. So that you have what's on top, but it's not actually consuming anything. It's burning other fire, which is on the bottom, which is consuming stuff. So just the 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 layers of I mean they just go off on this. Um, another one is uh, the the name of of God, which is you know if you write it with English letters, it's it's Y H V H. And that represents the stages of ever-increasing divine manifestation. So there's also colors associated with the letters. And those are in the Zohar compared with the stages of fire, for instance. Yeah, I mean, so they, they really, they, yeah, there's just so many hidden meanings and, and different interpretations. Again, so then there's, there's, a, there's a couple of chunks where they look at uh, one specific sentence and say, why is it written this way and not, um, you know, an alternative way? And so then they scrutinize just the sentence structure for deeper meaning, which, you know, we mentioned before. And I I can see, Travis, the alchemical sort of basis about how this connects to the podcast tonight. Uh, This is a a religious sort of viewpoint on things, and I think a lot of our listeners might be saying, okay, well, walk me down the the path here. How is this related to alchemy? Well, all these shows that we've been doing have – 
um, this type of thought of taking something, tearing it down to its base elements, and trying to put it back together to say, okay, what does this mean? How can we get from point A to point B to point C uh, to make this, that, or have this kind of consciousness awareness? And um, this is happening here when we're talking about this uh, Kabbalah. Yeah, even um, any, not not all, but but several alchemical texts are a good example of writing one thing and meaning something completely different. So they almost tried to imitate uh, in many ways this kind of you know, esoteric writing where, you know, you're reading the the red phoenix does this and this, but you're not talking about that at all. You're talking about uh, mercury or, or some element or something completely different. Um, even when they write mercury, they might mean different things. So I think is, yeah, taking these, just these ideas of writing in an esoteric way. So, oh yeah, there's definitely a connection and, and we'll get into it at a, at a future podcast. But well, let's, let's take a look at this. You know, when we talk about the soul is likewise broken into three parts and, compare, and compared to the flame, like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Abraham's story is, is retold in, in this way as an example of, of where he received the parts of the soul and eventually God's wisdom. Uh, when death is close and you're about to die, you stop dreaming. And sometimes you don't even see the shadow uh, when you pray. And Before I go any further with this concept, Travis, you and I talked about this the other day, that there's a belief system in here that in, in Judaism that before you die, mm-hmm. you see what? Yeah, you, you, the angel of death starts to follow you around. Right. It could be a couple of weeks or a couple and, of days uh, before you're supposed to yeah, pass away. Yeah, even like your dead relatives and your, like your father, you'll see your dad and... And, uh, you know, eventually your relatives will take you to the next place. There's a couple of interesting things. So I, I did ask one uh, a Jewish buddy of mine about the, the soul in the three parts because I've never heard that before. And he said, oh, yeah, that's, that's pretty mainstream. Like they actually – and um, there's even a um, – uh, I wouldn't want to show a cause and effect here. But, but there's – you know, in Neoplatonism, there's clearly like the world soul and then you have your own soul. And when you die, your own soul goes back to the world soul. I'm not saying one came from the other, but um, so the Zohar breaks down, and even, I guess, uh, some some Jewish mainstream beliefs break down the soul into three parts, and they go into great detail about, you know, what is, you know, how they split down and and how they break apart, and then when you die, what happens to those three parts, and yeah, so the rabbis are talking, and back to the angel of death thing. So they're talking at one point, and he's like, oh, man, I've been seeing my dead relatives all day. That can't be a good sign. Yeah, that's not good. <laughs> and the angel of death has been following me around. And so the other rabbi goes, okay, so, so come in the house quickly. And then even though the other rabbi can't see the angel of death, he says, okay, anybody that's not invited in this house cannot come in. Almost like vampires, right? you got to invite them in. So the angel of death is standing outside the front door. And the rabbi that, uh, so the rabbi that should be dying doesn't die right then and there. And he's saying, like, yeah, I prayed today, but I didn't see my shadow. And you know, it, it sounds like kind of like a waiting game that you're probably going to lose. And, and another thing, this, this, um, I, I asked an, a buddy of mine, and and um, uh, he said that that in kind of um, mainstream Judaism, there's a lot of emphasis on your daily ritual and prayers. And uh, in the Zohar, like they they mention praying at midnight, and there, there's a lot of ritual. And I guess that's pretty mainstream, but. Um, what isn't given that much thought uh, in kind of mainstream Judaism is the afterlife and what happens when you die. And there's a lot of emphasis in the Zohar on that. So that could be a difference. I don't actually know. I'm not an expert there, but that could be a difference. So they actually, they say one thing that depending on how good of a life you lived, you know, how much you seeked wisdom, how much you tried to understand God and all those things, that that then depends on your actual dwelling in the afterlife. So they actually describe that in 
when you go to heaven, they say, okay, you're a good rabbi. You've been doing this and this and this. So don't worry. I've seen your abode in heaven and you'll have windows on four sides. So you have lots of light coming in and, you know, light having a, a deeper meaning there. And um, so it's really interesting. It's like he's like describing his house in heaven, which, you know, I think mainstream Judaism don't give that a lot of thought or at least not, not a lot of emphasis. And then another thing was saying that if, yeah, this was kind of gruesome, but also interesting that if you live a bad life, so when you die, your soul is stuck in, a, in your body for a while. But depending on how bad you were is when it gets released. So um, Jews and also Christians believe that when you're buried at some point in the future is the, the day of judgment and, and uh, God will uh, bring all the bodies, you know, everybody back to life and you'll be back in pristine condition, which is why cremation can be heretical in, in certain cases. So you need to preserve the body and bury it and, and so forth. But in the Zohar, they say, okay, but if you're a bad person, your soul's stuck there for a while, and you feel the decay. And they even mention, like, up to a month, like, you're stuck in your body, and as you're decaying, and they kind of go into some detail there, um, which, yeah, I'm not going to go into right now. It makes me want to stay like, on the right path Yeah, so you're when stuck you're alive. in your body, and you're, <laughs> right. you're feeling this for up to 30 days, and then your soul's released. That's a, that's a pretty bad punishment. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it was pretty interesting. There, there was a lot of emphasis on that. I, I pick and chose very few parts out of a pretty interesting book, um, and and it's not a hard read. So if you're interested in in kind of the Kabbalistic canon, you know, it's one of the basic books. Um, those, yeah, read the Zohar. It's it's pretty interesting stuff. We will get into uh, Christian Kabbalah, and uh, that's a much thicker book. I need to get through. So that's. Uh, yeah, that'll be interesting. And uh, this Mirandola guy is the one that wrote it. So yeah, he was also an alchemist and had some thoughts there. But they basically used the Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic system, to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So they break down the Hebrew name of Jesus and, um, you know, give it that numero- numerological system. And they break down the word Messiah and they say, hey, look, you know, here you go. There's your proof right there. And this was also done by Ramon Lul to, you know, he actually engaged rabbis and, and said, hey, look, you know, we have a lot in common and uh, pretty interesting stuff. So we didn't really tie it to alchemy this time, but this is the foundation to do it next time. So uh, yeah, I appreciate you listening and, and I hope you found this as interesting as, as we did. And thank you very much. Thanks very much. Have a good night. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com, or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page, or Twitter, at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast, all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.